Man, delayed gratification is a hard skill to learn, isn't it? You know, life is, in some ways, life is just a series of decisions. And many, many of our decisions, most of our decisions, whether big or small, they leave us either with a feeling of gratification or a feeling of regret. Part of our problem in the human condition is we often don't know which one it's going to be while we're making the decision. Um, sometimes it takes days or weeks or months or years before we know whether that decision uh, is a gratifying one or one that has led to regret. And sometimes, man, some of us have been living with regret for a long time. Christianity, living the Christian life that Paul has been talking to us about for the last section of the book of Romans, in some ways is about delayed gratification because the Bible teaches us that there, there are marshmallows in this world we shouldn't live for, right? We shouldn't live for the things of this world. There is another world coming that's far better, and we're to live for that one. So in many ways, delayed gratification is a part of our faith. But there's a really sneaky fallacy about Christianity. In other words, there's a there's a there's some thoughts about Christianity that seem true, but actually are false. It's easy to think that the Christian life, that a life well lived, if I'm going to do this Christianity thing, if I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus, it's easy to think it's going to make me like those kids in that video, where the rest of my life is going to be spent just white knuckling it. Right? Just trying all I can to not do what I want. If I'm going to be a Christian, if I'm going to be, try to be a disciple of Christ, I'm going to spend the rest of my life not doing what everyone else does, and I'm going to be all miserable and filled with this angst and either regret for not doing what I want or regret because I've done what I want. That's not the Christian life. It's really not. For a few reasons. One, God doesn't make us a promise like was in that video. God doesn't say, now don't eat this marshmallow, and if you wait until you die, I'll give you a second marshmallow. What God has for us in eternity, there's nothing in this world that can even be compared to what is coming. So it's not one marshmallow now or two later. Second, we don't get to that world by being good enough and having enough willpower in this life. We, we, get, we get to eternal life because Jesus had the willpower to not make any mistakes and yet suffer for hours. But also, 
the Christian life is not one that is just, you're not signing up for angst and misery. And we have this God that puts these marshmallows in front of us and says, oh, you don't eat that. If you do, I'll whack you. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life really about half miserable like the kids in that video waiting for me to die. That, that's, that's not what Christianity is. See, our God, He doesn't give us, put tasty marshmallows in front of us and tell us, now don't eat that because He's mean and because He doesn't want us to have any fun. We don't know often which decisions will, will be ultimately gratifying and which decisions will ultimately lead to regret. But God does. And so when God in his word tells us, you really shouldn't eat a marshmallow like that, it's not because he hates us. It's because he loves us. It's because he knows what's best for us. He knows the way life works best. He invented life. He knows the way it works best. And the behavioral commands he gives us, the path of obedience that Jesus set for us, is actually the path that leads to joy and hope and contentment. Now, how, how does the gospel strengthen me, make me filled with hope and joy and peace right now, even if being a Christian means I won't do some of the things other people do? How does that work? That's where Paul wants to leave us in the book of Romans. We have sadly come to the end. Romans 16, verses 25, 6, and 7 is a doxology, which is just a fancy way of saying a word about glory. Paul ends with, with a word about the glory of God. And in this doxology at the end of the book, Paul teaches us, how the gospel can, can benefit our lives right here and now, not merely after we die. That's where we're going this morning. Let's read. Oops, I did something terribly wrong there, Said so help me out again. There we go. Romans 16, 25, 6, and 7, read this way. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but is now manifested or made clear by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. I clicked me one time there. There we go. I think I'm good now. So we start there in verse 25. Paul begins his concluding doxology this way. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. I think maybe we should just stop right there and ponder that much. Remind ourselves that God is able 
to strengthen us. That's really good news. A lot of our, uh, most of our English versions, and this thing's not working in any sense of the word this morning, so heads up back there. There we go. Most of our English versions translate this word as um, establish, which is a fine translation as long as we're willing to look up the actual definition of the word establish because we don't use it in modern English uh, like what Paul means. If we're going to establish something, usually we're talking about starting something new, right? If you're trying to establish a business, you're going to establish a new habit. You're going to start something, right? That's not what this word is. This word means to take something that already exists that might topple over and brace it up. Strengthen it is what we would say. Paul says, God, we have a God. Our God is able to strengthen us. I know in a crowd of this size, statistically speaking, there has to be a certain number of us that feel weak, that feel vulnerable, that feel stepped on, exploited, somehow bad. Listen, God is able to to strengthen you. Now, how does God do that? Maybe not in the way we would ask, but in a way that works. Now, to him who's able to strengthen you, Paul says, according to my gospel, according to this gospel that I have been describing for 16 chapters now. Paul says that's how God strengthens people. The gospel is not just something you believe when you're young and that you set aside thinking, well, I got that crossed off. Now I will live my life trying to strengthen myself through my accomplishments, through my money, through fun, through whatever. The gospel is how God strengthens Christians. The gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, preaching Jesus to people. That's how God strengthens folks. Now, can God strengthen us in other ways? So if, I, if I'm feeling very lonely or if someone's feeling very lonely and is God able to introduce them to that certain special someone? Of course he is. If someone's having financial troubles, is God able to get them a better job? Of course he is. If someone is ill, is God able to heal them and strengthen them that way? Of course he is. But through the gospel, God strengthens people even when he decides not to do those things. The gospel is how God is able to strengthen people apart from our circumstances. We pray for those circumstances. But God has strength that he is able to strengthen with simply through the gospel. That's why we continue to need the gospel. Because I need God to strengthen me to endure, to keep going, to not lose a sight of this faith, to hang in there with Jesus, to stay in the boat with Jesus, as we used to say here years ago. 
to endure, to endure the pain and the heartache this world throws at us. But how does the gospel strengthen people like you and me? I'm glad you asked. Click me again there, said, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I'm sure it, it's always user error. I want you to know that. You ever hear this saying, the Lord moves in, in mysterious ways. You ever hear that? It's very cliche. It's also very true. So Paul has just said, God can strengthen you through his gospel. And then he says this about the gospel. He says, it was uh, this revelation, the gospel is this revelation of a mystery that had been kept secret for long ages, but now it's disclosed uh, and through the prophetic scriptures has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God. That has something to do with how the gospel strengthens you. So if you need strengthened, you need to understand what this says. That's what I'm for. So Paul says, the gospel strengthens you, and here's how. He calls the gospel a mystery. Now Paul doesn't use that word the way we normally use that word. He, he, he talked about this concept of a mystery in, in several of his letters. And you know we think of a mystery as some caper that somebody has to put the clues together and figure out. That's not the way Paul uses the word mystery. Um, in the Bible, a mystery is something that in the Old Testament, people didn't know. But now, God has allowed it to be known through Jesus and through the apostles and the other authors of the New, of the New Testament. So here's what Paul says. The, the, the gospel, God strengthens people according to the revelation of this mystery that was kept secret for a long, long time. But now... It's been disclosed. There's no one, there was no one alive during the Old Testament, no matter how godly of a man or a woman they were, uh, no matter how well-versed in the Hebrew Scriptures they were, there's no one who could have sat down and, said, and, and guessed, all right, here's what God is up to in the way he will save people. Someday, God is going to send his actual son, uh, to be born of a virgin, won't have a human father, and that son will grow up perfect and will deserve no punishment from God. He will do many, many miracles and signs and wonders to prove he is who he claims to be. But at the end of his life, his nation that he came to be the king of, Israel, will turn on him, will reject him, will hand him over to the Gentiles, and the dominant Gentile power will execute him horrifically. But all of that will have been God's plan. Because during that time, God will be taking the sins of mankind, placing it on his son, and punishing his son with all of the wrath that mankind deserves for its sin. And three days later, he will rise again to prove that is what happened. And then he will come again, and that time he will reign. Now, that's all true. But no one in the Old Testament could have put all of the information together and understood that. It was 
a mystery. But now, we know that to be true. Why do we know that to be true? Because you and I are just so much smarter than people in the Old Testament? No. God told us. Jesus himself told us. All of Jesus' friends and the apostles and the New Testament, they tell us all those things are true. But it's not just them that lets us know it's true. Because, Paul says, that's now disclosed through people like Paul, but also through the prophetic scriptures. It's been made known to all the nations. Here's what Paul just said there. Now that we know the mystery, now we can turn back into the Old Testament prophetic scriptures. And now that we know the plan of salvation, now that we know the gospel, when we read the Old Testament, guess what we see? We see it pointing to Jesus, page after page after page after page. And that's very convincing. That's what lets all the nations know this can't just be some accident. We've been studying Exodus in Sunday school for a long time now. And it's amazing how that ancient, ancient book is about Jesus Christ. And Paul said this wasn't just an accident. This is the plan God unrolled according to the command of the eternal God. Like it didn't just happen happen that way. This was God's commanded plan all along. Now, that's what those two verses mean. But remember what we're talking about. Somehow, this is supposed to strengthen you. Do you feel any stronger now than you did a second ago? Maybe you should. But here's why. Does God change? Or is God the same today as he was in eternity past? And is God the same today as he will be in eternity future? God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right? So... Is God still doing stuff like this? And what I mean is, is there still stuff you'd like to know from God that God doesn't do you the favor of of letting you know? Or does God let you in on everything? No. There's still lots of whys in life. Aren't there? God, why? Why is this your plan? Why did that happen? I just did two funerals this week of incredibly tragic situations. Why? God doesn't let us know. But because God unrolled the gospel the way he does, it strengthens us. Here's why. If I look backwards at how God unrolled the gospel, and I know, look, for millennia in the Old Testament, no one knew what God was doing. But was God doing? He was doing something fantastic. God was leaving the trail that would point to Jesus Christ, and after he showed up, death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus is like, hey, now why don't you go back and read through the Old Testament and see what's there. It's like, oh my goodness, this was here the whole time. We can see it so clearly now. 
I can see why God did all of those things. I don't have time to go through the Old Testament with you. I'd love to. God still is doing that. So that someday, someday you and I will stand and look backwards at our life. And we will go, oh man, that's why. Well, look what God was doing right that I couldn't see it. But God was at work with a perfect plan. Maybe we'll know, oh, he was saving me from this. He was setting up that. Oh man, I never would have, could have known he was doing this. But that's how God's always worked. It's how he unrolled the gospel by which you will save all mankind. So that next time when it's, when it's your turn to suffer, when it's my turn to suffer, and God decides he won't lift up the curtain and let us know why he's doing what he's doing, we can be confident he's doing something great. Paul told us in this book, we know we know that all things work together for good for those who love God. How many things? All things. But Matt, even the terrible things, even the painful things, even the horrific things, all things. Somehow God is going to stir them all together and when they come out the other side, they're going to be good. For those of us who love God and who are called according to his purpose. That's how the gospel strengthens us. Because God is always at work even when we can't tell why. Now next Paul's going to tell us why God set things up this way. Because him unrolling this plan, this is, I'm going back to the beginning of verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, and in there in that ellipsis, the dot, dot, dot is where he talked about that mystery that's now been revealed. God did all that. Why? To bring about the obedience of faith. In the book of Romans, one major theme is Paul was constantly dealing with his detractors people who said, Paul, if we teach the gospel, this news, the way you proclaim it, if we tell people that people are justified, counted not guilty, in the high courtroom of heaven, saved, redeemed, whatever you want to call it, if that happens to people merely by faith, then people are just going to go crazy. People are just going to take that belief, take it to heaven, and they're going to sin and sin and sin and sin. And Paul says, may it never be. Absolutely not. That's not the way this works. But that's always the argument. That's always the argument. And so we think, no, no, no. We have got to control behavior. We've got to tell people, yes, you need the grace of God, but you better behave we got to guilt and coerce people to showing up here and tell them if you're not here five Sundays out of eight, then you better hope you don't have the car accident. we gotta, we got to use guilt and coercion to control behavior because the gospel doesn't do it. 
Paul says, oh yes, it does. And it does it way better than guilt and coercion. Here's how. When you wrap your minds around, when you, when you believe the gospel, you look backward through the Old Testament, you see it on every page. When you uh, grab a hold of what, God, what uh, the, the height and the depth and the breadth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And you say, man, if God is able to save the world through a plan like that, and then God promises that he can make all things work together for good for those who love him, then I think I want to love him. If God is able to unroll this plan of salvation in a way where it was in plain sight all along, nobody could see it, and then bang, it's plain as day. He can do that, and then he promises all things will work together for your good when you love me. The result of that is, like, I don't want anything else. Like the marshmallow the world offers me suddenly pales in comparison to the plan I don't even know yet, but it comes from a God who is good, who loves me and promises to work everything together for my good. That's how the gospel leads to a way bigger kind of obedience than just trying not to let the people in my church know what I really do in my off time. The gospel leads to this radical, life-changing kind of obedience when we realize what God offers is better. He strengthens me in a way where I can, I can hold out and refuse the world's marshmallows, not because I'm afraid God will hate me if I nibble on that, but because God, what God provides is better. God's way is better. I don't want that because of fear. I want him because of love. God is able to strengthen us according to my gospel that brings about the obedience that comes from faith, not the obedience that comes from coercion and guilt and shame. When I get to know God better and his plan, I, get to un- I begin to slowly understand that just life with him is better. My purpose is to glorify him. I don't even know how this is all going to work out. God can encourage this kind of obedience where I will do things I would never have done 10 years ago because they're too scary. They're too churchy. They're too religious. They're too whatever. But I just know it's what he would want me to do. And I want to dive in and do that with him, for him, to make him look good. Because someday at the end of my life, I want to be able to look back and say, look at what God was doing. And I was actually with him. And Paul ends, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. That's our job. That's our created purpose to glorify God forever. We don't have to wait until we get to heaven to start glorifying God. We should want to be about that 
today. Do you see a little bit? Do you see at least a little bit how the gospel strengthens us, strengthens people? It, it strengthens us uh, not by resolving all of our struggles, fixing all of our pain, but strengthens us to, to hang in there, to walk with him, to trust that he's doing something good, even if I can't possibly fathom how what he's doing could ever be good. And when we get there, this, this bigger, more radical kind of obedience can begin to show up in our lives. Not just, I don't do that, I don't eat that marshmallow. I would never, ever touch one of those marshmallows. It's, I want to glorify Jesus Christ of my life. I've been reading over the last few weeks, when I, when I have a minute, a book called The End of the Spear. It's fantastic. Highly recommend it. The End of the Spear. It's written by a man named Steve Saint. Steve Saint's dad, uh, Nate Saint, was with Jim Elliott. You might recognize that name. Um, there were five guys that were trying to make contact with an Amazon tribe in Ecuador years ago. They made contact. They had given some gifts. I'll cut to the chase. Read the book. Those five men were speared to death by that tribe. Steve Saint was, I think, five years old. As he always did, he stood on the runway while his dad took off in the plane with his friends. As was his routine, he was back at the runway that afternoon waiting for his dad to land. And he never did. Fast forward um, a few months, he saw uh, the pictures of his dad's speared body in Life magazine. Steve Saint went on to live with those people, like not that people group, with those people who murdered his dad. He lived with his aunt who was translating uh, the Bible into their language so that she could show them Christ. Years later, he was, Steve Saint was baptized by one of the men who speared his father to death. I want to read you a little passage from his book. Here's what it's about. Steve Saint knew his dad was so dedicated to glorifying Christ that he was willing to die if it brought glory to Christ. So he refused to blame God for the murder of his dad. Even though Steve Saint believed that God orchestrated the murder of his dad. I want to say that again. Steve Saint believed God orchestrated the murder of my father. Listen to what he wrote. It is only my conjecture, because none of us can know the will of God completely, but I think it fit God's plan that all five men died that day. I know that might offend some people. But I don't think what happened to my dad and his four friends caught God by surprise, nor do I think God simply allowed it. No, I believe God was much more involved 
in what happened than merely failing to intervene. Later he continues, there are too many factors that all had to work together to have allowed the events to happen as they did. Too many for me to believe it was just by chance. I have come to the conclusion that God did not look away. He did not simply allow this to happen. I think he planned it. Though this has not been an easy conclusion to come to, I believe it is the right one. I have personally paid a high price for what happened to my dad, but I have also had a front row seat at the rest of the story as it has been unfolding for half a century. I've seen firsthand that much good has come from it, from the murder of my dad. I believe only God could have fashioned such an incredible story using such a tragic event. I cannot begin to record the thousands of people who have told me that God used what happened to my dad to change the course of their lives for good. Besides, it's enough for me that because Minkaye killed my father, my family now has the privilege of loving him and being loved by him. And because my dad and Jim and Pete and Roger were willing to die, Kimo and Yue and Katika and Ampodae and Tementa and Gaba and Odae and Titi and Dawa and Kawaena and Koba and Gaakamo and their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and many others will all have a chance to live. If I could go back now and rewrite the script, I would not change a single scene. I have come to understand that life is too short to let amateurs direct the story. I would rather let the master storyteller do all the writing. You hear that? Now, you think when, he, when little five-year-old Steve Saint learned that his dad had been murdered, do you think he said, hallelujah, praise God, thank you so much for what you're doing? No, it hurt. But 40 years later, he could look backwards and say, it was good the whole time. And because his mom and his aunt had that attitude, they didn't take their toys and go home. They continued this radical kind of obedience that led a whole bunch of people to coming to know Jesus, some in the Amazon rainforest, and many more in places like this. The gospel strengthens people to be able to continue. The gospel brings about this kind of obedience that can only come from this kind of faith. Now, where could someone... Like Steve Saint, where could he look to see a model that would allow him to keep going in an obedience that would require that? Well, look what we have here. It's Communion Sunday. The reason I think God commanded us to remember what Jesus did 
is because maybe we won't think it quite so strange when God asks us to do what he wants us to do. Because the foundation of our faith is an act of radical obedience that caused great pain and loss. When they were in the upper room the first night, or that night that Jesus was arrested, were the disciples saying, way to go, God. Seems like a great plan you got here. No. They were confused. They were scared. They were probably angry. So Jesus said things to him like, hey, I'm going to leave my peace with you. You guys just stay in the boat. You're going to be able to look backwards and see one day what all this was for. And so this morning, as we remember what Jesus did for us, let's do two things. Let's remember what Jesus did for us. It is our only hope before a holy God. If he didn't die under the punishment my sins deserve, I would still need to. And either he did enough or I am lost. So let's remember what he did. And then let's think about the obedience that comes from faith. Remember, he told us, pick up your cross and follow me. I hope he doesn't ask you to get speared to death in the Ecuadorian rainforest. But if he does... And then on your own, I said two things, but let's add a third. Whatever you are struggling with, whatever you don't understand, maybe while the bread comes around, the cup comes around, maybe you spend some time with the Lord and confess, God, I've been holding on to this. I've been holding a grudge with you because I thought you've been messing this up. And I want to trust and believe that whatever you are doing in this, you are doing for good. And one day I know I will look back and see that. So I'm just going to roll with you on this, see how I can glorify you in this, and trust that one day, however you make this turn out, I know I will celebrate it with you forever and ever and ever. Let's pray while the guys come forward. Father God, I thank you so much that you uh, kept the gospel a mystery for all of those ages and ages and then revealed it the way you did through the teaching and the death and the burial and the resurrection of your son so that we can know this is how you operate. You don't always tell us what, why you're doing what you are doing. You don't owe us that. But you have demonstrated that you love us that you love us so much you would not withhold your son from the punishment we deserve. And you are working all things together for good for those of us who love you who are called according to your purpose. God, build in us the kind of obedience demonstrated by your son whom we remember now. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for his example. We thank you for his faithfulness that stood in the place of our sin. In Jesus' name, bless the bread while it comes around in our time remembering. Amen.
you know, the next time the Lord ordains that it's your time to suffer, it's my time to hurt, is it okay if you don't like it? Is it okay if you don't want it? Yeah, how do you know? Because that night, the Lord Jesus fell to the ground, sweating drops of blood and said, Father, I don't, I don't want this. Isn't there some other way? The Lord is our example and our Savior. We don't have to enjoy suffering. It wouldn't be suffering if it was enjoyable. Just somewhere in there, there's that ability to ask for this cup to be taken from me and still say, but not my will, but yours be done. And if you can, if you can bring good out of the suffering son of God, you can do anything. So I'm going with you. It's one reason, reason why we remember him, the one who took bread and broke it and gave a little piece to each of his friends so that he could look at them and say, this is my body broken for you. We do this in remembrance of him. Father, as the, as the cups come around, um, and some of us sing and some of us pray, and some of us confess. And some of us remember. God, what we remember is that the blood of Jesus is the only way we can be pleasing in your sight. And by his suffering, we are healed. We long for the day when that healing is complete. And we trust you in the meantime. Be with us while we commune over the cup in Jesus' name. Amen. If, if God didn't create a system whereby through suffering he could bring about good, you and I would be in a whole lot of trouble. It's part of who God is. He can, he can bring beauty out of ashes. He can bring our forgiveness out of the blood of his son. It's our only hope. And if he would ask him to suffer and we follow him, somehow it will be good. That night in the upper room, he, he lifted up the cup. He blessed it. He said, this is the blood of a new covenant. Do this in remembrance of him. And now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that had been kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed and through the prophetic scriptures has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about 
the obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory forever and ever. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.